Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, head to www.sexedwithdb.com and buy some of our hot new merch. Follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast. And if you want to advertise with us, shoot us an email at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Today, I get to speak about reproductive health in the economy with one of my favorite Columbia professors, Andrea Flynn. Andrea is a senior fellow at the Insight Center in Oakland. Prior to joining the Insight Center, she spent eight years at the Roosevelt Institute, where she was most recently the Director of Health Equity. She is the co-author of The Hidden Rules of Race, and she teaches courses on reproductive and sexual health, public policy, and economic inequality at my alma mater, the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. You can follow Andrea on Twitter, at Drea Flynn. Listen up for Andrea. Want to get your birth control with free delivery? Well, now you can with Pandia Health. Pandia Health makes our lives easier by bringing you birth control wherever you have internet and a mailbox. If you have a prescription, you can move it to their pharmacy and get your birth control delivered. If you don't have one, you can have their expert birth control doctors write you one. Find out more at pandiahealth.com. That's P-A-N-D-I-A health.com and use code SEXEDFREE to get a free telemedicine appointment for the first 50 people who sign up. Follow them on Instagram, at Pandia Health. Offer only valid in Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, and Wyoming. I bet you baked all the bread and binged all the TV shows during quarantine. But have you created an exact copy of your genitals? Yeah, I didn't think so. Meet Clona Willie. Clona Willie and Clona Pussy are DIY molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of a penis or vulva at home into a high quality sex toy or memento. Check them out at www.clonawilly.com and use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase. Follow them on Instagram at clonawillykit. Sex Ed with DB is supported by Emojibator. Emojibator believes in humor and education to promote a society that celebrates pleasure. Their fun and affordable collection of vibrators is inspired by the sexiest of emojis. That means eggplants, chili peppers, bananas, and pickles. Oh my! They even have a line of adorable animal toys like a kitty cat, chicky, and whale that do a whole bunch of naughty things. Find all of their body safe toys for pleasure at emojibator.com and use code SEXEDWITHDB for 25% off your purchase. Good morning, Andrea. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. I am so glad to have you on. This has been a dream of mine ever since I took your first Ooh. class at Columbia, and I really, we manifested it. I'm very excited. I'm excited too. Thanks thanks again for the invitation. Of course. Uh, let's get started by you sharing your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about what you do. Great. So my name's Andrea Flynn. I use she and her pronouns. I spent about eight years as a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute where I researched and wrote about the intersections um, of economic inequality and race and gender. Incredible. 
And what is your background? Like, how did you how did you come to this work? And and do you have like an aha moment of like why you're so passionate about repro health and justice? It's a good question. Um, my path to where I am now was um, a bit wobbly. It was definitely not straight. I've always been very focused on sexual and reproductive health and rights. Um, you know, I think I got hooked in my first women's studies class, international feminisms in college, my first semester of college, um, became a women's studies major and, you know, just felt like that was my calling. Um, and when I graduated from my undergraduate program, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do journalism, which was my other major or women's studies. And I decided to sort of go the um, gender route and ended up after a long series of internships. Um, uh, I ended up at the Kennedy School at Harvard, where I ended up working in philanthropy. And then I spent about six years working with women philanthropists who were donating um, their money to women's foundations around the world. And so that was a really um, really amazing learning experience. And I really got a sense of, um, how philanthropy works, how money moves, how money, you know, uh, sort of the role of philanthropy in policymaking in the nonprofit world, um, both domestically and internationally. And that was, um, and remains very, a very, very valuable experience. I always tell my students, um, you know, fundraising might not be what you want to do, but if you're not looking to go into the private sector, those are skills that will always be super useful to you. Um, and I decided, you know, as much as I loved philanthropy and development work, that it felt a little far away from the, you know, hands-on work. And I went back to graduate school. I went to Columbia and did a joint um, MPA, MPH. Um, and then after that, found my way to the Roosevelt Institute, where I spent a, a long time doing um, lots of different research related to racial inequality, gender inequality, the links of, between sexual and reproductive health and economic um, stability. So, um, yeah, you know, my path is a little windy, but um, here we are. <laughs> I think that's so valuable to hear because we do have a lot of listeners who are interested in sexual and reproductive health who kind of like message us and DM us on Insta and are just like, how did you do this? Like, there isn't really like a clear sexual and reproductive health path, like for people who, you know, classically want to become like doctors or lawyers or musicians, like they're very, there are yes. very clear paths for certain people. And I feel like for this field, there are so many ins and like ways to access like helping people and doing the work that you want to do. So this is very refreshing to hear that your path is different. Yeah. And I guess the other thing I'll say for folks who are, you know, have questions about like how to get into this space that you're most passionate about, that, you know, sometimes these fields are small and they can feel hard to break into. And there's like only so many policy orgs that are working on this issue and only, you know, so many foundations. Um, one of the best things I did was join a board early in my career, I joined the board of the Third Wave Foundation, and I was on that board for a really long time. And um, that was just like fed my soul. I've loved the work so much. And it also gave me a totally different skill set that I would not have gotten and didn't get from my other work work. Um, and so I always tell people if there's an organization that's doing the work that you're passionate about, ask if they need board members because there's a ton of work you can do on a board and 
that is just a really great way to connect with the field or organization that you feel passionate about. That is fantastic advice. After this conversation, I'm going to look into that because I think it's a, a good way to stay connected and just like feel grounded in like what you want to be doing, which is yeah. awesome. Okay, so you mentioned this, but your new role, director within the Research and Action Hub at the Institute for Women's Policy Research, as well as a professor at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health, our alma mater, uh, and you're teaching classes on issues in sexual and reproductive health, which is amazing. I took, like, what, three of your classes. They're all incredible. Um, whenever people ask, like, oh, how was the, you know, how was the program at Columbia? And I'm like, let me tell you about Andrea Flynn. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you. Uh, because it really makes a difference when you take classes with a professor who, like, genuinely cares about the subject matter. And it's just, like, so with the political year and political years that we've had, it's just so important. Like this material is so important. Um, I would love to also know though, what your current job entails and like mm -hmm. what, what is your research really focused on? Yeah. So um, my current role is really building out a hub that will connect um, researchers with advocates. And the idea really is that it will create a more symbiotic relationship between the people who are doing the work on the ground, moving ideas to action, and the people who are doing the research, you know, really making the case for certain policies, be it paid family leave or better investments in a childcare infrastructure. Um, you know, oftentimes those two spaces are dis are are not totally connected. And so you'll have researchers doing amazing work on the one hand, and you have advocates doing amazing sort of grassroots power building work on the other hand, really pushing for different ideas and policies. Um, and the idea is really to better connect those two spheres so that we can move research to action more quickly. Um, and also so that the research really reflects the values, ideas, language, um, you know, what what resonates with folks on the ground. Um, and I, I do think the in the field of gender equity, um, those relationships are better than in other fields. But I think the idea for the hub is to really strengthen those relationships um, and to have a place uh, that can sort of develop a national research agenda on women and the economy, which has really never been more important than it is today. Um, and help connect researchers and research institutions that are really doing amazing work, but might be doing it in silos and not connected with each other. So we want to create opportunities um, to first develop that research agenda, um, to help fund that agenda, and then also to make sure that researchers and institutions can really leverage one another's work. Um, and so, so that's what we're in the process of building right now. It's a new enterprise at a very um, established institution. IWPR has been around for a very long time and really is one of the leading think tanks doing work on um, gender and economic inequality. So it's a really exciting place to be. And, you know, it was, uh, it would have been exciting a year ago pre-COVID and in this moment, um, given what we know and are seeing about the gender dimensions of the economic crisis feels particularly important. So I'm, I'm very excited about the new role. Yeah, amazing. We will definitely get into the COVID-related material. But first, I just want to say, I think it's so 
true what you're saying about researchers work being so siloed and like that was one of my main kind of critiques or like things that would keep coming up for me while we were studying these topics at Columbia was like we would read a research paper and then we would say okay well like what does this mean let's like break this down and like translate Mm -hmm. this and then we'd be like let's close the book on it and I'd be like wait a minute where is the connection like you're talking about to what we need to be doing on the ground and there were a couple of like advocacy classes that I found really important but I did find that missing in my experience so I'm really glad that that does exist and that you are someone who is leading it uh, especially right now as you mentioned with COVID and everything that's that's going on with the economy uh, not being in women's and especially women's women of color's favor essentially totally Speaking of that, um, so when I was your student at Columbia, I was I was super fascinated personally to learn about the connection between reproductive health and economic outcomes for people really based on, you know, their healthcare access and their quality. And I'm wondering if you can talk about reproductive health and how that and economic security are so fully linked. Yeah, I think this is such an important topic. And, you know, oftentimes, particularly in political or policy conversations, um, we talk about reproductive health and economic security as two distinct topics. You know, like repro is sort of often peripheral to those other conversations. And even when we're talking about economic security with a gender lens, which often brings up paid family leave or childcare, And I I would actually argue that that's too limited, that there's actually a much broader range of economic issues that deeply impact gender and racial inequality. But repro is just often on sort of off to the side and not included in that conversation. Um, And that's really um, doesn't reflect how women say they experience their reproductive health and, you know, their reproductive lives, which are deeply connected to their economic security and mobility. Um, So, you know, I always first say to people, there is some great research done over the last decade that really reflects that women say having the ability to control and plan the timing and size of their family allows them to finish their education, maintain their career, advance their career, take care of the children they already have, um, keep their job, right? There are all these ways that having the ability to care for our bodies the way that we think is best allows us to be successful in other parts of our life. So, you know, just from that sort of uh, anecdote, that sort of personal story perspective, we know that reproductive health access um, is really central to women's economic well-being. Um, And I think there's so much other important research that sort of confirms that, you know, the Turnaway study um, has been doing amazing research over the past few years. And I think you had Turnaway folks on the podcast. She was our first episode this season. Um, So, you know, they're doing amazing work. And, you know, what that work has really showed and confirmed is that reproductive health and economic well-being are two sides of the same coin. Um, We know that women with lower incomes, with less wealth, um, particularly women of color, have a harder time accessing reproductive health care, particularly abortion. Um, And that when they are not able to access those services when they want to, it sort of fuels this um, sort of fast cycle of economic insecurity. Um, And so, you know, I think that research shows us how 
being economically insecure, not having steady income, not having access to personal wealth, not having access to public supports that women in most other countries have access to puts you, um, you know, at a greater risk of needing these services and not being able to access them. And then when you can't access them, it just exacerbates the economic conditions you're already experiencing. So um, I really think, um, you know, I always say we cannot have conversations about raising the wage, improving benefits, making job opportunities better if we're not also going to talk about making sure all women have bodily autonomy because all of those advancements will be muted and will be um, unsuccessful if women, um, all people, not just women, if people do not have the ability to make decisions about their bodies. Absolutely. And my next question is specifically about, you kind of mentioned like, you know, how women of color and low income women and and we'll also, you know, talk about like LGBTQ folks as well, because we see that there's research there with lack of access and lack of opportunity, uh, too. But you were one of the authors of The Hidden Rules of Race, um, Barriers to an Inclusive Economy. So I would love for you to give us kind of a short history lesson about these hidden rules and how, you know, racism, classism, sexism are all so incredibly intertwined to create intentionally certain outcomes for folks in the U.S. when it comes to their reproductive health and rights. Sure. So, um, you know, we wrote that book, uh, started writing that book during the last primary um, for the 2016 election. And the reason we wrote that was because we saw that there was a robust conversation happening in progressive spaces about the importance of progressive economic policy. Hugely, hugely important. Um, however, what we were hearing was this idea that if we just fix the economy and if we just fix the, um, you know, enable more people to have more economic opportunities, that would be the rising tide that lifts all boats. And we, um, what we wanted to do was push back on that a little bit and say, actually, not everyone is going to experience these economic changes in the same way because of where they're situated on the race, class, gender, immigration status spectrum. Um, and, and this book focuses specifically on the history of, um, of racism in our economic policies. And what we really wanted to do was show that uh, history still has a huge, huge um, impact on present day opportunities. And so we really um, literally like drew a line from slavery and Jim Crow policies to the present day to show how we've never really had a true reckoning with like the, the root of those policies um, in our history. We've changed the policies, the language has changed, how we talk about them has changed. Um, but in many ways, we have just created new policies that have reinforced old outcomes. So I'll give you one example. Um, you know, in the book, we talk a lot about labor market, job opportunities, income, um, you know, differences in income. Um, and we talk about how, um, you know, the New Deal was this incredible moment in history. We're talking a lot about the New Deal now and how we are in this New Deal, another New Deal moment. Um, the New Deal really um, 
really came into being at a very similar time in history. It was created to address the pain of the Great Depression. And it was like one of the greatest mobilizations of public resources we've ever seen. The government was really mobilized to create jobs, create secure jobs, invest in infrastructure all over the country. Um, but it also came at a time of real, uh, when, you know, racism in our policies and our society was very real. It, you know, it was Jim Crow policies were in place um, to really replicate the conditions and outcomes of slavery. Um, and so there were a number of things baked into the New Deal that basically created these exclusions that we're still living with today. And um, really the most concrete example of that is that uh, domestic workers and agricultural workers were locked out of the benefits of the New Deal. Um, and and the, that was sort of a, a clever way of excluding black workers from the benefits of the New Deal. Policymakers at the time knew that they couldn't just say black workers shouldn't have access to these programs. But they did know that because of the legacy of slavery, the vast majority of workers in domestic work and in agricultural work were black workers. And so they created these carve outs for domestic work and agricultural work, which meant the majority of workers, uh, the workers in those sectors did not have access to the incredible benefits of the New Deal. And what we see is that the New Deal became this incredible pathway to the middle class for white workers while holding back black workers and not giving them access to the many, many benefits, the policy benefits that the New Deal created. Um, and you can still see the ramifications of those exclusions today, right? And sort of, <coughs> excuse me, in labor market exclusions, uh, in the vast wealth gap that we see today. So, you know, I think the what we really wanted the book to do was show how the policies of our past really continue to shape opportunities and outcomes today. Absolutely. And can you can you get a little bit more into I know we talked about this in like a lot of our classes, but kind of like intergenerational wealth and like how that builds and how we don't really talk about that and specifically about, you know, like redlining and how, you know, black folks like don't have as many access, like didn't have as much access to like buying property and homes. Yeah, this is super important. You know, oftentimes when we talk about um, economic inequality, we talk about jobs and income. And that is super important. And that particularly important now when so many people are losing their jobs and income. Um, wealth is also an incredibly important part of this conversation, particularly because we live in a society, in a country that does not believe in robust public goods, right? Our government does not provide affordable service, like life goods that folks in a lot of other countries have access to, which means we depend on our personal wealth much more than people in other countries. Um, and it's important to sort of think about what makes up wealth. And income actually is not the greatest driver of wealth inequalities. You know, we are seeing incredible runaway um, sort of gains in income for those at the top, while income has been stagnant for those, you know, sort of the, the vast majority of folks. That's super important. Um, but one of the greatest drivers of wealth inequality is what you just mentioned, the intergenerational transmission of wealth. And what that means literally is the ability to pass wealth from one generation to the next. And so we were just talking about the New Deal, 
which opened up a lot of home ownership opportunities um, for workers. And most and sort of the most beneficial opportunities were for white workers who had um, more generous loan opportunities, were able to buy homes in neighborhoods where the value of their homes were going to increase over time. Um, and while black families were had a harder time securing those loans, and when they were able to buy, were, as you said, redlined into neighborhoods um, that were, you know, um, specifically for families of color, it was a way to really um, maintain segregation and ensure that the sort of value of um, the homes that belong to black people would not appreciate over time. And so it's not hard to think about how over the course of two or three generations, right, my grandfather's generation, um, that the homes our grandparents were able or not able to buy um, have really seeded wealth for lots of families or not seeded wealth for lots of families. And that that familial wealth really allows people to do quite a lot of things, right? It means... Um, if your grandparents bought a house and then gave it to your parents and then your parents sold it and then they have a little bit of a nest egg, um, they're able to pay for your college education. Maybe they're able to loan you money to start a small business. Maybe they then pass that wealth on to you, right? There are all these ways that wealth begets wealth. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that education piece is particularly important right now when we see what the burden of student debt does. To, to to young people, and we know that the disproportionate burden of student debt is sitting on the shoulders of young black women in this country who are already less likely to have access to wealth, who are more likely to be channeled into lower paying jobs, who are going to face a really significant race and gender pay gap. Um, right, there are all these ways that sort of not having access to wealth um, then sort of fuels this vicious cycle. Um, and so, you know, I do think wealth is an incredibly important part of the conversation. And while we're really focused on jobs and income right now, as we should be, we also should just remember sort of the legacy of wealth inequality and what that means for, um, for people today. And obviously at a time when people are losing jobs and losing income, those who have personal wealth are going to float for a lot longer than those who don't. So wealth is just a really important part of this conversation. Totally. Totally, totally. Thank you so much for, for imparting your knowledge and your wisdom. <laughs> uh, because I feel like these are such important conversations that aren't like technically news, right? Like they're showing right. up in our current landscape, but they've been as you always say, like very baked into the foundation and the fabric of our country. So I feel like without really knowing that history, there's really no way for us to understand how to undo it um, and how to really unlearn all of these harmful things that have been happening um, and like overturn these really harmful policies. I do. I just want to add, you know, there's been some over the past couple of decades, there's been some really incredible research done on the racial wealth gap. Um, and that research has really moved like from the periphery to the center in recent years with, you know, increased attention to racial inequality and racial violence. Um, 
And so I just want to sort of give a shout out to the folks who are doing that research and have really forced policymakers to think about um, what the wealth gap means for people's everyday lives and to really start thinking about a host of policy solutions um, to address it. So that is um, certainly, I think, in the research and policy world, uh, has become a much more prevalent conversation. Wealth still isn't something that we talk about at like the kitchen table, right? Right. We experience it, but um, I think what I've found is that people talk about it in very different ways that don't often sound like wealth, the wealth gap. Right. Totally. Yeah. I'm glad that you made it clear that there are there are people who are working very hard to to have those conversations and make yeah. them mainstream. Absolutely. Uh, switching gears a little bit. So I want to talk about the semi-recent appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Um, a lot of people, including myself um, and other folks who I've spoken to in the field, feel like her being confirmed will be super devastating to reproductive freedom, health, access, etc. for not only women, as we kind of mentioned before, but queer people, you know, people who tend to be super anti-abortion don't tend to love queer people. So right. obviously there are some connections there. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the fear that folks have about Roe v. Wade being overturned and how abortion access can be curtailed even if it isn't overturned outright? Yeah. So I think this is a really important question. And I really don't have anything to say to make people feel better about the situation. What I will say is that Roe v. Wade has been threatened now for a very long time, that this is not new. Yes, the makeup of the court is not friendly to any of the communities that you just mentioned. And that is a real cause for concern. Um, also, states have been peeling back at Roe for a very long time. They have been successful at it in a lot of cases. And there are some cases where the court has, um, like in Whole Women's Health, really held up Roe and have protected, um, you know, protected that decision. And so, you know, I think that's important to note that when these, when the big cases have come before the court most recently, they have stuck with precedent on Roe and um, so I, that, that's significant and important. It does not mean that reproductive health and rights are not in jeopardy. They are. Um, and you know, I think what we are likely to see in the coming months and in some ways have already started to see is that, um, state lawmakers will likely try to pass in many cases will be successful at passing restrictive abortion policies, um, with the explicit goal of getting those policies before the Supreme Court in the hope that the new court will take up a case that will pose a more significant or effective challenge to Roe. So that has been happening for a long time. Those efforts are likely to be accelerated given the new makeup of the court. Um, and I think what this tells us and you know what folks working in the field have known now for a long time is that what's ha what happens at the state level is very important. The people who you vote for at every single level of government are incredibly important. Um, and, you know, at the same time that we've seen states pass really regressive repro laws, we've also seen states like Massachusetts and Colorado and California pass really progressive, inclusive policies. And so, 
you know, in this moment when the Supreme Court is not does not have a makeup that favors doesn't have our back. Let's just say that. Right. Yes. Um, That really being creative and advancing progressive policies, proactive policies um, at the state level will be more important than ever before. Um, And you know, I think that will be easier in some states than others, but we're really seeing incredible um, advocacy and activism in states where that's possible. And, you know, I think that will just become even more important in the year ahead. Yeah, I mean, thinking about that a little bit more deeply, I feel like it's challenging just to know that, like, the states that already have progressive policies towards women, towards queer people, will just continue to solidify those. And then it'll just take, you know, with Biden being elected, but still, you know, probably a very slow start to some of those things. There are a lot, there are a lot other of other emergencies that we're dealing with. And this is very much an emergency. But I think, like, I guess my point is that it's a little scary to me that we're just becoming more and more solidified in our, like, distinctions with like conservative states versus um you know more progressive states and i i don't really know how to like reckon with that other than to say like yeah exactly what you just said of like we just need to get more like local progressive politicians but i just think it's such a especially with seeing like the popular vote of like how many people still after all of these years like think that trump is like the best choice for them like you know 70 million or so people it's it's just so disheartening and just very worrisome and i just don't know like where to go from that thought It is disheartening and worrisome and really threatens to um, exacerbate inequality, you know, between states so that blue states, you can imagine a scenario where blue states have more access, which they already do, because lots of red states didn't expand Medicaid. So there are already lots of ways that sort of health access um, is different across state lines. That's been the case for many decades. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think um, one thing that's important to note is that there are ways that the Biden administration can um, impact health access um, at the federal level. And some of that can happen by executive action. Some of it needs to happen through regulatory procedures. Others will happen, try to get through, you know, the legislative process. But I think to know that um, there are lots of ways that we can think about securing or expanding access to health care um, and particularly in this moment where the court is is a challenge to us, um, right? Thinking about fully funding Title X, getting rid of the domestic gag rule, which has really, um, you know, seriously impacted the ability of our national family planning program to service the many millions of women and young folks and LGBTQ folks and men who need access to publicly funded health services that actually like being able to fully fund that and remove some restrictions that have been put on that program would allow for an expansion of care. Like if we can get rid of the Hyde Amendment and make sure that folks who are on Medicaid have access to abortion. So there are lots of ways that we can um, advocate for and put pressure on our representatives to expand access to care that sort of goes beyond Roe. Um, and I think those those are really critically important and are really important in this moment when there is a window um, 
might sort of influence what policymaking will look like over the course of the next few years. Totally. Yes, that is a nice beacon of light, of like hopefulness um, that there are things federally that we can be doing to get folks more blanket access. The final question that I have is about COVID, right? So we've kind of been like dancing around it. Um, I think we know by now it's been a part of our lives for nearly a year, which is very sad and terrible and horrific. So I want to talk about its impact on families and more specifically mm-hmm. women, women of color. And you wrote an article for Miss Magazine in March of this year. My gosh, that um, feels like it was a million years ago. I know, it really does, which is sad. But um, the article is titled, The All-Consuming, in, All-Consuming in Quotes, Emotional Labor Caused by Coronavirus and Shouldered by Women. Um, and I really love this article. And <laughs> I feel like there was so much like realness and like humility from your story and I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the impetus behind writing this article and also how much this economic crisis caused by COVID impacts certain communities more than others. Yeah. So um, I'll start with my personal anecdote first. Um, You know, that piece, I I rage wrote that piece. um, And I think in the article, I say that I was writing it on my phone at like two o'clock in the morning in bed, which is true. Um, you know, I think, uh, COVID just broke a lot of us, um, right. Um, folks who are all have children are balancing work and life and like things felt fragile for lots of folks before there was a pandemic and an economic crisis. Um, and like most parents I know were teetering on the edge of, like hanging on um, before COVID. And then those early days when like there was no school, there was no online learning, um, you know, uh, and what I wrote about in the piece is that, you know, my husband and I both um, have jobs that are really important to us. Mine was very flexible and his was not. Um, and in those early days, he spent almost all day on the phone in meetings every day. And I, didn't have a meeting heavy schedule, which meant that I was sort of doing most of the work with the kids and then staying up late at night to, um, you know, do whatever didn't get done during the day. And, um, and that, that for me is not just, is not simply a reflection of a willingness of a partner to participate in the house, because actually that was incredibly stressful for my partner to like see what was going on and have the demands of work. Like it wasn't, and I think I say like, it's not that our husbands are assholes. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. That's, I think that's an, that is um, an incorrect simplification of the dynamics that we've seen. And what I, what I wrote about in that piece is that I felt like what I was experiencing was a reflection of the inequality that existed in the economy and in the labor market. Right. That, um, Uh, my husband didn't have access to as generous paid leave policy as I did. So that meant I was, you know, sort of the default parent for the early years of our kids' lives. And, um, you know, just all these things, like all these ways that, you know, men are often paid more, the gender gap is real. And so lots of families are faced with this dilemma right now of like, one of us can't work or needs to work less. And it doesn't make sense in the middle of an economic crisis to have a person with a higher income step back from their job. 
Um, so I really felt like the rage that I was feeling in that moment was not just rage about what was happening inside my house, but it was rage that this external system had created inequities that like despite my greatest efforts were being replicated inside my house and inside the houses of like most women, most people I know, um, not all for sure, but the vast majority of folks I checked in with as I was writing that piece were like sort of affirmed my experience. Um, and so, so that was that piece and, you know, nothing has changed since I wrote that. I think I shouldn't say nothing has changed. There are, um, we've all gotten a little bit better in the house about like adjusting our work schedules as needed. And I actually think there's like some of that balance, some of that has balanced out a bit more. Um, but my rage over over that the sort of external dynamics has not changed. Um, I also want to say that I am extraordinarily privileged because I still have a job. I have a job that allows me to and my partner to both work from home. Um, and so, you know, I I and other folks like me who are able to work from home are experiencing this moment in really challenging ways. And also. Um, there are lots of folks who are experiencing this moment in even more challenging and detrimental ways. Um, you know, we now have um, an abundance of research to show us that the crisis has taken um, a very disproportionate toll on women who work in low-wage jobs. Those workers are predominantly women of color, um, Black and Latinx women, and also immigrant women. Um, that folks who are working in low-wage sectors, uh, those sectors were the hardest hit at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, those jobs are the jobs that are being slowest to come back. And so you have this dynamic where the pandemic uh, closed work for lots of low-income jobs um, because of a whole host of historical and current policies and dynamics and practices um, women of color, women are channeled into those low-wage jobs. And that means that the economic crisis, really for the first time in history at IWPR, we call it a she-session, that we're seeing a recession that has disproportionately impacted women. Um, and, you know, there's been a, a lot of focus on the continued high numbers of unemployment for women. And that's really important. What those unemployment numbers don't show is the number of women who have dropped out of the labor market altogether. So you are only captured in unemployment numbers if you are actively looking for work. Mm. If you are not looking for work, you are not counted in those unemployment numbers. And the data shows us that between um, August and September alone, 850,000 women dropped out of the labor market altogether. Wow. Um, meaning they are not working, they're not looking for work. And one of the primary reasons for that is that schools are not opening, daycare centers are not opening, many of them have closed, right? The lack of childcare, which was already a crisis before there was a crisis, the lack of childcare has made it literally impossible for women to work. Um, and we know for low-income women, for women of color, for women who are single mothers and don't have anyone else to help them with childcare, that um, you know the the lack of schools. Schools are important for lots of reasons. One of them is that they care for our children during the day. If schools are not open. Parents literally have nothing to do with them, and they need to stay home. So. 
the childcare crisis has really um, just made the economic crisis so much worse for all women, but particularly um, for low-income women um, and women of color. And, you know, I think what the pandemic has made so evident, which lots of folks already knew, but now like everyone knows, is that we cannot have a functioning inclusive economy unless we have a robust childcare infrastructure. We just cannot do it. Women will not get back to work at the levels they were before without childcare infrastructure. And so we don't just need like a little bit of money in childcare. We need major, major public investments. Um, and not, you know, on so many levels, it's like we need money to keep uh, childcare centers open that are on the brink of closing. Lots of them have already closed and they will not come back. And there was already a childcare shortage before COVID. Um, so we need funding to keep the ones that are open, open, allow them to stay open through, um, you know, throughout the public health restrictions, allow them to um, have money to meet public health requirements so that their, their young people and their workers are safe. And on the other side, we need to ensure that those workers are paid a living wage. Yes. The average wage of childcare workers in this country, I think, is $11 an hour. Um, right. So you have people who are literally doing the most important work of our economy, caring for our families so that people can work, um, putting themselves in danger to do that work and getting paid a wage that is is not a living wage. Um, and so we need to think about investing in child care and in care work more broadly from multiple dimensions. Right. Paying for small uh, giving money to small businesses and providers to let them survive in this moment and then thinking about ways to improve the working conditions of the women and predominantly women of color who sort of keep that sector moving. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, thank you so, so much for this incredibly enlightening and insightful interview. I am always so happy to speak to you and learn from you. And I'm just so appreciative. So thank you so much. Oh, it was really a pleasure. I'm so happy that we made it happen. Want to win a year's worth of free lube? Yeah, I'll bet you do. All you have to do is enter the secret code word into the Uber Lube Google form on our Instagram link tree, and bam, you're entered to win that sweet, sweet year's worth of lube. I'll bet you want to know what that code word is right about now, don't you? Okay, fine, I'll tell you, but don't tell anyone. The secret code word is slippery. Enter that word into the Google form on our Instagram link tree, and you'll be entered to win. Good luck! If you're someone in a long-distance relationship, quarantine can be especially difficult without your boo. What if you could have an exact replica of your partner's penis or vulva to use as a sex toy? Intrigued? Learn more at www.clonawilly.com and use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase. Sex Ed with DB is supported by Pandia Health, the only doctor-led birth control delivery company. Here are some fun facts about Pandia Health. Most birth control is free with insurance or for $15 per pack without. Your birth control comes with free delivery and free goodies. And you can get an online doctor visit if you need it, which is perfect during COVID-19. 
go to pandiahealth.com. That's P-A-N-D-I-A health.com and use code sexedfree to get a free telemedicine appointment for the first 50 people who sign up. Offer only valid in Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, and Wyoming. Our creator, co-producer, sound engineer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our main logo and banner graphic were created by Andrea Forgotch. Our social media intern is Leslie Lopez. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gant. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast. Tune in next time.